Hello and welcome to Bookish, the show where I ask interesting people to discuss the five books that have shaped them most. This week's guest is Dr. Marion Turner. Marion is a professor of English literature at Oxford and a fellow of Jesus College, Oxford. She specializes in medieval literature and culture with a particular focus on Chaucer. Her latest book that came out in 2019, Chaucer, A European Life, is a major biography of the great medieval poet. In it, she argues that Chaucer's life and work were profoundly international, and she presents him as this extraordinary European poet whose experiences were embedded in multicultural and global contexts. Her book was chosen as Book of the Year 2019 in The Times, The Sunday Times, and the TLS. In 2020, it was shortlisted for the Wolfson History Prize. You'll hear me rave about it in the interview. It really is one of those rare history books that feels so lively and abundant, and it just jumps off the page. I loved it, and I really loved this conversation. We had to edit it for time, but I could happily have talked about books and children and gender politics and the wife of Bath and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe for another hour. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Well, Marion, thank you so, so much for doing this podcast. I am just thrilled and honored and delighted. Your book on Chaucer, this is not a book review show to be clear, but I can't have you on the show without talking about your book. Uh, it's uh, I'll, You'll hear all about it in the intro, but Marion's book, Chaucer, A European Life, is I cannot stop telling people that this is not just because I have a degree in English literature. This is a book that everyone should read. It's just amazing. It brings the whole of medieval England and Europe to life. It's it's a close reading of his work, but it's also you you zoom in and give us what you know Vintry Ward smelt like and the house that he might have grown up in and the space and how that space changed. And then you widen out and give us the historical perspective on what's going on politically at the time. I'm so floored by how juicy and not dry or academic or dusty, forgive me, I don't mean to use the word (laughs) with any, um, you know, depreciation, but I think it's just such a treat to read a biography about someone from, you know, 1360 and feel this connected and lively and buoyant about it. I've been like bursting into my husband going, you don't understand. It's so cool. Now, now, now we, now it turns out that he was fashionable and wore little tabards that were too short. And and some people think that brought the plague back. Like uh, he's, my husband, he's sort of looking over, over his glasses at me being like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. anyway, I, I just, I, I've loved, loved reading it. And the more I loved reading it, the more I was just excited about having you on as a guest. And I couldn't wait to get your list of books in case. I, I just figured we you couldn't possibly pick five and not have Chaucer in there somewhere. So I was relieved <laughs> when the Canterbury Tales made the cut. How, well, I'm just um, so thrilled, so thrilled that you like the book and that you've taken the time with it. Um, I'm really, really, you know, very touched. Um because it was obviously a big part of my life for many years writing that book. And it's been great that so many different kinds of people have have been reading it. And Mm. one of the most amazing things in the last year or so has been the letters that I've had from people who've said it's it's helped them a little bit in the pandemic, that it's helped them to get away from their own lives and plunge into this other world. And Mm. I think because, as you were implying, people have found it quite an immersive book because I do try Mm. to get into spaces what people heard what they read what Mm. they saw what it was like Mm. to travel across Europe all those kinds of things um and people have said that it's you know just given them a little bit of of help to 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 think about what it's like to live in a different time and place um Mm. so that's been really meaningful for me and and I think also the fact that actually he lived through a worse pandemic and you can get through these things. Um, yes, I, I noticed that. Like I say, this is not a book review show, but you you had written, I even flagged it, uh, to quote yourself back to you, which is always fun. Um, <laughs> now I've lost the page. Damn, it was turned over. But you wrote something in the uh, one of the early chapters about uh, the Black Plague and that we have... We have never in our lifetime, not with a world, not with world wars, not with the yeah. crusades, not with pandemics, have we lived through anything the scale of that? And I, I, I agree. I, I'm 
I'm touched that people wrote you letters. I'm so glad they did. That seems so old fashioned, just as a side note, but so lovely mm-hmm. that they did. But I can totally see what it is to, to ground what we've all just been through in a historical context, I think is enormously comforting. I, 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 I relate to that entirely. Yeah. And I think Where, that for us, sorry, I just want to say our generation and our parents' mm-hmm. generation, you know, we haven't been through, thank God most of us haven't been through these huge seismic things at all and so it seemed so shocking mm. the pandemic but before mm. that you know our, our grandparents generation they had lived through world wars and big pandemics and these shocking mm. things that affected you know many many countries or the whole world they happen periodically and we had had such a lucky 70 years or so where those things didn't happen right. so it felt like, oh, why? You know, a lot of people say, why us? Why our generation? It's more, why not the previous generation? There was a lucky right. time. And, and that right. was the unusual time. Right. Yeah. Um, to come back to the thesis of my show, was it easy mm. for you to pick your five? Did you, was that a hard thing? It Did you deliberate? It was incredibly hard. It was incredibly <laughs> hard. I mean, you know, I, so hard but in such an invigorating way because I mm. I thought and thought about what I wanted to 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 do with this because I think your whole concept mm. of this is not your favorites this is books that have have made you who you are have affected mm. your biography that then sets you off thinking about what it is that makes you and you know one and, and because many of the books that I immediately mm. thought of were children's books or books that I'd read as a teenager and it would have been, I think some sure. of my instincts were to go for, I, I could easily have done a list that was all children's books, for instance, you know, and that yes. would be quite interesting. Yes, me too. But then you kind of think, yes. when do I stop changing? Actually, because I have changed a lot in the last mm. 10 years. You know, you don't do all your uh-huh. growing up before you're 16. But yes. a lot of those books yes. are the primal books that really stay with you in a very particular way. Um and then you, and then I think you, sometimes you drift towards favourites. Then you think, but hang on, I love that book, but did it change me? Did it, did it <laughs> yes. make me who I am? And so just yes. trying to, to think about that, or I think, yeah, yeah. And, and I tried to be very honest um, as, mm. as well, but I think that, you know, you think, should I be trying to, to press particular buttons? You know, should I, you know, and you think, should I have this kind of book in there? And, and I didn't do that. I just tried to pick five that I do that I do think have have mattered to me and have taught me things and have have, have mm. changed me. But I have many shadow lists that I could send. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> totally. I relate entirely. In fact, at the end of season one last year, I had my producer interview me so that I could put myself in the shoes of my guests. And uh, I mean, it's why I came up with the show in the first place. Is I I, I love goes without saying, I love reading, I love books. And I, I have always been curious in as an only child and someone who grew up with books as very much my siblings. I know where the craters lie, if you like, um, where the impacts have been. But to narrow them down to five was really hard. And I hate lists of favorites. I don't like favorites, anything, but five things that felt shaping, felt a more mm. sort of instructive way to approach it. Anyway, I, I'm so grateful that you've interrogated it so thoroughly and that you um, were that rigorous with yourself because agreed, it's really easy to write, you know, to come up with, um, you know, the, the list that everyone is dazzled by or or the lo- book list of sort of recherche unknown little, you know, monologues or whatever. I, I am so grateful when people are you know, rigorously honest with themselves about what those what those books are. So let's start with your first one. Your first book is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, which was published in 1950. I'm so glad to see this on the list. This was a narrow contender for one of my my books too. I just adore this book. Tell me how old you were and where and when you read it. I have absolutely no idea. This is a book that is so (laughs) rooted in the early part of my childhood that I can't remember not having read it. I mean, I think that as as I'm sure you were as well, I was quite a precocious reader. You know, as I turned out Mm -hmm. to be a literature professor, you know, so I I I I did a lot of reading as as a child, and it's really hard to unpack it. I read all the Narnia books um, at a very young age, um, and 
although I don't remember where I was sitting when I first read the book, what I do remember is very frequently getting into the wardrobe. I remember the wardrobes, the actual wardrobes. I'm not being metaphorical here. The actual wardrobes in my family wow. house I used to get into and try and get through. I always knew that that wouldn't happen. I didn't really think that I would get through the back of the wardrobes. But I used to literalize that metaphor a lot of standing in wardrobes and yes. pushing at the back of them and feeling. I and I, I don't think feel. you were alone. No, I'm sure. Um, and I can feel still the feeling of the clothes in the wardrobe on mm. my body as I mm. pushed the back of the wardrobe and thought about <laughs> and closed my eyes and thought about getting through. And I suppose that, you know, one of the things, one of the really, I think, obvious, but still really important things about that image of going through the wardrobe is that that is an image for reading. The whole idea of going Mm. through to another world and many, many children are fascinated Mm. by by fantasy worlds, but also by these books where you have your own real world and a fantasy world and you have that bridge between those worlds and that is I think partly particularly what you're doing as a child when you're reading is moving into that different world of you know as you sit you know with your torch under the bed covers leaving the aspects of your life that might be a bit dull or not very nice and plunging into that other world and that's what what you get partly from Mm. from Narnia um and I suppose when I think about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, and one of the things I thought about a lot when I was choosing this is for me, it is a book of two halves and my feelings about it go into two halves. So the first part mm. of my feelings about the book connect very much to the opening chapters. And these are the chapters that I adore. I absolutely love them. And I think there is such a mythic power about going into Narnia about the lamppost. About for people Mr. who Thomas. haven't read the book, for the few people that haven't read the book, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me what in the, just sketch out what in the early chapters was, was meaningful for you. I know what was for me. Mm. What, what, just, just, uh, you yeah. don't need to tell the whole story, but sure. what in the early so, part is your, what's your half? So it's when Lucy gets through to Narnia. So when this child gets through to this other world and mm. it's, she's alone in that other world or her other siblings haven't got through and she meets this strange creature, this fawn and the power of that scene where he comes out of the woods, there's a lamppost. We never really know what that lamppost is all about. And Mm. she goes to his house and the, the scene is, is drawn. It's such a sensual scene when she's eating this incredible tea and the fire is on and she's talking to this wonderful creature. And it's all this incredible fantasy. And when you're reading it for the first time, this is all so lovely and exciting. Mm. And Mm. then Mr. Tum, and then you realize this isn't what's happening at all. And Mr. Tumnus says that he has what asks her what she would think of a fawn that did something terrible, that betrayed Mm. children. And she says, but you would never do that. And he says, you don't understand, I am doing it right now. Yeah. And you freeze as a mm. child reading that. You just, you freeze. You, you cannot believe it. I almost have tears mm. in my eyes just because yes. you're so yes. horrified by the betrayal. Yes. By the idea as a child, you trust someone, they're lovely. And then this terrible thing happens and, and has already yes. happened. And you've been wrong all along about them. Yes. And, those scenes are so powerful and they're doing so many different things. And indeed that sense of betrayal, which also comes up a little bit later in the book. And again, when her her brother gets through as well, but then he tells the other siblings that it's all a lie, that Lucy has been making it all up. He betrays her then, then he betrays them all. And and he also has a very, a very powerful scene um, where he meets the terrible white queen in Narnia and he is, um, essentially seduced by her tempted by her I, I would I think it's an amazing feat as a child and as an adult I marvel at the the ingenuity and the extraordinary feeling of being betrayed by a narrator in real time I mean he's yeah. not the narrator but by the person that you're with in real time yeah. it's such a it's such a sleight of hand to pull off because you've been utterly seduced by this experience and suddenly you're wrong-footed and you're you're no longer in the hands of someone reliable. And that's such absolutely. an affront as a child. Yes, absolutely. And, it, and it's so it's so enthralling. And the way that 
the way that Lewis describes his room and the tea and the food and it's all so wonderful and you, you yeah. feel absolutely crushed by it and and that the book does go on to be about betrayal in lots of ways about a sibling betraying his siblings first of all Lucy and then all of them um mm-hmm. but about redemption for those betrayals as well you know Mr Tumnus is redeemed and you know so is Edmund but, but, but so there is a sense that you can you can get back from those from those betrayals but mm. I think that there is such a there are so many things going on in the early chapters of of the book and they are both magical and very real you know very real for a child I think when you read about the siblings teasing each other about the Mm. the way that they the way that they react to each other the kinds of things that are happening and of course it does the kind of the classic children's book thing doesn't it of separating children from from their parents it's yeah adults evacuation times Mm. um so I think that those are the those are the things that I mainly think about when I think about The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. They are those early chapters. And the I, I suppose the fact that I think there's a lot of there's a lot of things going on there that are available for interpretation when you think about what's happening with with Mr. Tumnus, with the fur coats, with the woods of Narnia. Mm-hmm. The, it, it seems very open at that point. And what I find much less appealing about the book is when it shifts into uh, a bit of a sledgehammer allegory. So as Hardcore most of your, Christian allegory, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and as you know, as, as many of your your listeners will will know, it becomes a a very obvious Christian allegory with um, a Christ figure lion who is mm-hmm. killed and rises from the dead, and it becomes extremely and obviously didactic, and mm. I find that quite annoying in a children's book. And actually, Did you- I find it. Sorry to interrupt you. I was just going to ask: Did you do you remember finding it annoying at the time, or is that a reread or a, a subsequent experience? Do you remember bumping on that when you were young? Yeah, I do. I did find it annoying at the time. Um, I mean, not so annoying that I didn't read all the other books as well. Sure, <laughs> sure. I still, I still love the books, but I found it annoying because I think also probably the reason as a child I found it annoying was because I found it a bit of an insult to my intelligence. Like you were being beaten over the head and told this is what this book is about. This is the thing that it's about. Um, yeah. As I've become older, I think I've probably found it more distasteful that it's specifically um, using a, a children's book to get to give children religious indoctrination. Um, sure. Whereas, whereas at the time, I think it was more the sense of well, well, I want to work books out for myself, and I want them to be more open. I want I yeah. want responsibility to be handed more to me rather than. Yeah rather than this very strict allegory. And I think that that's also something very interesting to me now, because I think now as someone who in my daily life is is an educator, I do very profoundly think that education is not about transferring facts from one person to another. It is not about sure. you know telling people what to think. It's not about telling, and as a literature educator, it's not about telling people what books are about in, in any um in any dogmatic right. way that and so I think that in that, that aspect of this book really is a is an example of what I don't think books should do so it's a so it's a I have this very split feelings towards it's, it <laughs> interesting yeah that's a that's an interesting nuance I see that I, I remember reading being so devastated by Aslan's death I, I couldn't you know and I grew up in a Christian household uh, not particularly practicing but but that was my that was my background. I definitely remember feeling so assaulted by the loss and disbelieving that someone would do that, that a writer would do that to me, that that they would ask me to watch my hero be shorn and spat on. And, you know, you go up in the Protestant church, Christ's death is, is, Quick, slightly glossed over. I'm not sure that we spend an enormous amount of time on, the, on you know, explicitly stating um, how he was reviled before he died. So the, the explicitness of hags and dwarves and ogres sort of leering at his body, I found that, I, I, I'm still slightly harrowed by that experience. I, I remember being like shocked as a child that you, you were allowed to put this in a child's book. I think I'm with you that later I felt affronted by being told what to think, but it, it's, um, I know what you mean about having this sort of dual feeling of give me the responsibility of, of choosing this. And I think it's interesting the way that perhaps 
in our childhoods, um, that sense of children's books as, as, as supposed to be safe. Mm. We, we didn't expect yes. that extreme violence. But of course, traditionally, children's books are extremely violent and, yes. you know, and, and brutal. And, you know, fairy tales, which have all been sanitized, was so yes. much worse than the originals. I mean, once I was, I was in a hotel and I picked up a children's book and was reading it to my, my children. And it was the story of The Little Mermaid. And I suddenly realized that it was the original version, which was not the version that they knew and was incredibly brutal. And there were still a couple of pages left. And at that point, I just didn't feel I could read it to them. And so I had to make it up, but keep my voice. They couldn't read at that point. They're very little. I had to keep my voice very even. I was still reading it and spin it out and keep it So good. That's Um, amazing. but, But actually, you know, I think that, if I thought more about it, that's kind of the wrong thing to do. Um, certainly someone like Roald Dahl doesn't, um, doesn't shy away from all kinds of brutality and viciousness. Yeah. And I mean, this is a part the of life. Of it. Yeah. 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 And it, it can be, it's important not to, not to try to um, hide everything from, from children. They can usually yeah. cope well with it. I, I agree. So your second book, I was so thrilled to see on here. I feel Mm. like it should be on everyone's list, your second book. Um, Your second book is A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf. It was published officially in 1929, but it is really based on two lectures that she gave at Cambridge at Newnham and Girton Colleges, which are two women's colleges, um, which she gave on the 20th and the 26th of October in 1928. So they're lectures that became this incredibly famous um, essay. And I was so glad. I was so surprised. I went back and checked, and it's the first time anyone's picked this book. Mm-hmm. And it was so fun to pull it off the shelf and remind myself of, of how important this book was to me. And P.S. to women, to society. That's secretly what I mean when I say we... <laughs> We yeah. should all bow down before this book. But anyway, before I talk any more about it, tell me when you, if you remember reading it or who gave it to you or how you how you landed on it. This may be too obscure a question. You may not remember. I, I read it when I was about 13 or 14, that, that kind mm-hmm. of age. Um, mm-hmm. And I think I got it from the library at school. Um, mm-hmm. I'd already read some Wolf, um, maybe maybe Orlando, maybe Mrs. Dalloway. Um, and I think at that age, I I didn't read many essays like like this. You know, I, I read fiction mainly, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't read mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And really, I was stunned, absolutely stunned by reading this book. I think that these days, mm-hmm. educated girls of that age are probably much more aware of feminism and I would say that at that point, this really mm-hmm. was, and it sounds, it sounds, I feel like this sounds over the top, but this really was the moment when I became a feminist, which I would say is an absolutely fundamental part of yeah. who I am and my identity. And I suppose in sure. a way, I was always a, mm. a feminist without realising it before that, because certainly I always believed in feminist values, but, but I hadn't articulated it, I hadn't thought mm-hmm. about it. And I was, I remember being utterly astonished when I read this book and read about Virginia Woolf Mm. not being allowed to walk on the grass in Cambridge and read her Mm -hmm. talking about the absolute you know the most important thing for women is economic independence and that is something that I fundamentally believe to this day that everyone needs to be economically Mm -hmm. independent for themselves I hadn't thought about that before Mm -hmm. I read that book it's uh-huh. full of amazing, you know, stories, speculations. And so I think the other part that really, really stays with me is her imagined story of Shakespeare's sister with the idea that mm-hmm. there are. So, so she talks about you know, the idea that had there been someone as talented as Shakespeare in his own time, she would be highly unlikely to have succeeded. She couldn't really have had the success that, that Shakespeare had. And of course, her point is that there have been across time many many people as talented as that who did not have the opportunities who couldn't succeed um because of what society did to them and what society expected of them so i think this is a book which has shaped me in so many ways because it it really was a, a, a kind of 
road to Damascus moment for me of, mm. of, of realizing that these things needed to be examined, needed to be thought about all the time. And although, of course, I am talking about this as a, a feminist book, which it is, it was also, I think, more broadly than that, it, it made me think about the fact that you know, genius does not come through whatever that you know, in that story of Judas yes. Shakespeare, you know, the, 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 yes. the, the, the idea that, you know, we can't actually, um, we can't assume that the best people are coming through. And again, this is obviously very, you know, we all know this now, but as a teenager, I, I didn't know that, you know, Revolutionary. And I, and I, absolutely. Yeah. And, and that was extraordinary, actually, to think about, okay, no, we are all, you know, shaped by, to a certain extent, by the forces around us. You know, we we yes. don't have an equal an equal chance. And women are in particular, but there are obviously many other groups as well that, that we can talk about as well, um, are not competing on an equal playing field. Mm. And I think that in, as time has gone on, I've become very aware that this is a book about a particular kind of feminism, that it is about white feminism and it is about privileged white feminism. And I think it's important to to acknowledge that and, and to say that, you know, in, in recent years, I've read, you know, books which have, have educated me more about intersectional feminism, about black feminism, about the importance of thinking beyond sure. Virginia Woolf. You know, I don't think that Virginia Woolf is the last word on mm -hmm. feminism. And, you know, there's been lots of books. I think a, a book called, um, I don't know if you know a book called Negro Land by Margot Jefferson, um, which is an, an American book. I loved book. it. I devoured oh, did it. You? Oh, I I'm it so was, pleased. Oh, I thought it was so beautifully written. I thought it was mm. so elegant and such, an, uh, such a erudite, deft and insightful take on a very painful subject. And I... I I was so grateful for a piece of literature like that, that didn't feel mm. like a manifesto, but that felt like true literature. I, I was floored by it. Yeah, oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. Because, I mean, I too just thought it was a, so moving as a book, so sad, mm. ultimately, and powerful. And we I actually taught that text a couple of years oh. ago on a on a life oh. writing um course that we we did for with the specialist course for finalists here which was which worked very well um and I think the students really enjoyed it as well um yeah books sure. like that have helped me to you know to continue to develop my thinking about about feminism um and so yeah. it's been an ongoing journey, uh, I, I, which I hope is still ongoing, <laughs> of course. Um, of course. But this was yeah. the foundational book for me, A Room of One's Own. And yeah. I, I don't want to to lose the sense of the power that that book had for me, because I think probably, yeah, more than any of the other books that I'm talking about today, Room of One's Own was a book that really was a moment of change for me immediately. You know, reading that book changed how I thought about the world. Me too. And so much so that I actually printed out a little paragraph to read out loud in the hopes that um, the readers, the listeners that haven't read it might be encouraged to go and find it. Because I find this, this is one of my favorite passages in it. And there are many. My copy is so heavily underlined. Women have burnt like beacons in all the works of all the poets from the beginning of time. Indeed, if women had no existence save in the fiction written by men, one would imagine her a person of the utmost importance, very various, heroic and mean, splendid and sordid, beautiful and hideous in the extreme, as great as a man, some would say greater. But this is woman in fiction. In fact, as Professor Trevelyan points out, she was locked up, beaten and flung about the room. A very queer composite being thus emerges. Imaginatively, she is of the highest importance. Practically, she is completely insignificant. She pervades poetry from cover to cover. She is all but absent from history. She dominates the lives of kings and conquerors in fiction. In fact, she was the slave of any boy whose parents forced a ring upon her finger. Some of the most inspired words and profound thoughts in literature fall from her lips. In real life, she could hardly read, scarcely spell, and was the property of her husband. If that doesn't make you want to go out and buy a copy of A Room of One's Own, I don't know what will. Um, so I'm urging that on everyone. Your third book. Oh, that was it. I had one more thing to say about that because I found this. This was another par This was another sentence that I had loved so, so much. So I'm just going to say it because 
I thought it was such an interesting thought. And I'd had it underlined in my copy from when I was at Oxford. So it must have meant something to me then yeah. and now. Uh, she talks about cultivating or creating, more likely, the habit of freedom and the courage to write exactly what we think. We meaning women. Mm -hmm. And I was so struck by the phrase, the habit of freedom. I don't think that's a phrase we hear very often. The idea that freedom is something to be cultivated habitually, that it is not something innate or granted, but that it is it, it requires a, mm -hmm. a habit to me speaks of discipline and of applying oneself over and over to something. And that for women we must acquire the habit of freedom. I thought that was really um, a stunning thing to say. Yeah. And a reminder of how much we internalise oppression, we internalise patriarchal values, we internalise a sense of what we should be doing, how we should right. be appearing, whether we should be speaking up or not, and that we have to we actually have to you know, be very conscious about moving beyond that and that habit of freedom rather than the habit of conforming right. because it's exactly. easier, because it's unexamined. Um, your third book uh, is a book I love too. Uh, your third book is Emma by Jane Austen and it was published in 1815. Tell me why this book is on your list. How did this shape you or form you? Or when did you read it? Whichever question you prefer, go with first. Okay, so... The reason that this is on my list is mainly because mm. this is a book for rereading that has meant so much to me for such a long period of time. It is also a book that needs to be reread even more than it needs to be read. And it <laughs> shaped <Great>. me. <laughs> and it shaped me through all those rereadings. I realized once I was about in my mid 20s and I'd been moving every year, you know, through student years and various different travels across different cities, doing different things. I moved every year and I realized that for many years, every time I moved, I'd reread all of Jane Austen. I hadn't consciously oh. thought, oh, now I've moved, I must reread Jane Austen. It was just something that I did instinctively. Oh, interesting. Was that a sort of ground grounding thing? Yeah, yeah. So it's a reassurance. It's a comfort thing. Mm. I have a I have a selection of books that I reread obsessively. So I read new things all the time. But when, mm -hmm. particularly if I'm stressed, if things are difficult, mm. if I'm you know, if there's some kind of upheaval, I have a, I have a lot of books that I reread, and they are all of Jane Austen. Mm. So the six major novels plus the juvenilia and the unfinished ones <laughs> so pursuit of love and love in a cold climate sure. um stella gibbons cold comfort Wonderful. farm ef benson the map and lucia uh -huh. and these books i just reread mm. when i feel stressed if i just you know want to curl mm. up um but austin is the is at the heart of my rereading practices mm. and I mean, Emma is the best one for rereading because for anyone who doesn't particularly know Emma, it is a book about puzzles. Mm. So it's, it's a book where the first time you read it, you don't know the things that are really going on. Mm. And then when you reread it, you see all the clues about who's really deceiving who and who's in love with whom and all the different things that are going on, many of which are very, very subtly dropped into the narrative in all kinds of places. Mm. So so when you reread it, you are enjoying it again for what it is. You are also enjoying your own superiority to the person that you were the first time you read Great. it. Yeah. And you are kind of laughing at your previous self, but feeling good about yourself because now you get it and you keep getting it more and more. And the next time you read it, you actually get even more. So you feel even more pleased with yourself. <laughs> so there's this... Um, so there's this kind of, there's this extra delight mm. in the way that you keep getting the little, because she's so clever. Jane Austen is so, so yes. clever. All the things that she puts in where you suddenly realise little tiny, tiny details. Yes. And you feel like most people probably don't really get that, but you're getting it because you know, you're, really, you're, you're such an assiduous rereader. And I love that. Mm. Um, I think the other thing that I just want to mention about Emma, particularly because I'm talking to you in um, California, um, is that you know Clueless mm. remains the best adaptation of any Austen <laughs> ever. I mean, what an extraordinarily good reading of Emma! It's just such a good reading of Emma. I think it's so much better than um, than a more literal um, adaptation. 
I love that you say that. Now, Clueless is something I haven't seen since it came out. And that, that well, you heard it here, folks, from your Don at Jesus College, Oxford. <laughs> Clueless is the best adaptation <laughs> of Emma. That's great. That's so good. Um, I'm going to take us on to your next one because this is, I hope, going to be a juicy arena. So your fourth book, unsurprisingly, is The Canterbury Tales, which are, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, um, 24 stories that are spread out over 17,000 lines long in Middle English and written by Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, you you correct me here, but I have somewhere between 1387 and 1400. Does that does that work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. So when when do you remember first coming across the Canterbury Tales? Well, when I was at school, we read some of them, um, as you probably did as well. Yeah. Um, in those days in, in the UK education system, everyone did study some Chaucer at school. Um, I didn't read all of them till I was at university. I did love them as soon as I started reading some at school. I thought they they were brilliant. Um, but you can't really appreciate them until you have read the whole thing, I think, because while individual tales are brilliant on their own terms, what Chaucer's really doing is, is fundamentally about um, the, the relationship between different tales. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, what Chaucer does is he, so he puts lots and lots of things together into a tale collection. And the whole concept of a tale collection is brilliant because it allows an author to do lots and lots of different things within the mm-hmm. same text, to tell a funny story and a serious story and a prose story and poetry stories and you know, saints' lives and romances and all kinds of different things and put them all together. And it lets readers you know, pick what they're interested in as well, you know, and, and dwell more on, on one thing than, than another. So the tale collection is a, a really, I think, clever literary form because it does allow variety. And I think, you know, my point about the the, the, the importance of, have, of reading lots of them is that I think that, you know, the most important thing that, that Chaucer was saying about literature is that we mustn't only listen to one point of view. And that, that mm. I think, is what he's saying about literature, about politics, about about the world. And that is, in fact, mm. a message that we need more than ever today when our social media feeds are all fixed. So we only see adverts sure. for things that we already want and are linked to political stories that are things we already agree with, etc. You, you know, yes. and, the, and yes. what he was saying really importantly is that we can't just listen to one person's perspective. You know, what you see is dependent on where you are standing. Mm-hmm. Different people will tell the same story in completely different ways with completely different sympathies. Mm-hmm. And it's up to you who you like more, who you believe more, with whom you have more affinity. Mm-hmm. But you need to listen to lots and lots of different points of view. Yeah. And I, I don't know what could be a more important message than yeah, that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Do you? Would you urge people that haven't read it I mean, to is there a translation? I use the word loosely. Is there a version that you Absolutely. that you like? Because the old English is is not impossible at all, but it might be. And uh, you know, once you've learned the fourteen hundred different words there are for horse, you can probably figure it out for your own. <laughs> but but it in an effort to get people to have a look at the Canterbury Tales, what's the what's the version you would? urge people to yeah absolutely so so there's a there's a there's a translation by someone called david wright Mm -hmm. um there's a much older translation by neville coghill Mm -hmm. um i think i think it's it's fine to read in translation i mean of course when people are studying at university it's very important to read in middle english i think a lot of people have said to me that once they once they try the Middle English, they're surprised by how accessible it is because it, you often yeah. start to read it and it looks intimidating. And then if you hear the words in your head, you realise they are mainly familiar words. They're just badly spelt um, and inconsistently yes. spelt. Um, yes. but, it's, it's, but there's lots of accessible translations. So I, I think that it's, it's, it's very much worth reading. People, I mean, even I find that when I talk to school children, which I do quite a lot, they they almost always love Chaucer once they've read it, but they many of them probably wouldn't have chosen it. They would have been intimidated or they would have thought it was going to be boring. And then they read it mm. and they find it hilarious because they do tend to pick the, mm. the, 
for school they tend to pick the um the very funny ones for them them to read and yes you know, a lot of them are very rude they're very funny you know people have sex in trees yeah. all kinds of comic things happen yeah and but they're also there's also a lot of amazing poetry in there so there's there's a lot of different things going on um and I think that I mean I was talking just now about this uh, the, one of the things that I think is particularly important is this idea that we need to li- listen to different perspectives and mm. what's really one of the really radical things that that Chaucer is doing with that is saying that those perspectives mustn't just be the perspectives of people in power of authoritative yeah. people so yeah. there had been other tale collections, um, but for example, there was an important Italian tale collection by Boccaccio called the Decameron, which you know is, is is wonderful as well. But all the tale tellers are from the same social class; they're all gently born, they're related to each other, they're all young and beautiful, and those are the kind of people that had a voice in medieval society. And really, you know, they we could we could say that there are there are certain kinds of powerful people that are much more likely to have a voice in our society as well and Chaucer puts sure, together this sure. this motley crew yeah he puts together this this group of people yeah. and says well actually you know let's not only have important people telling stories let's think about what a more ordinary person might have to say we should listen to their stories their stories actually turn out to yeah. be wonderful and hilarious their their stories yeah. um end up sometimes you know, mocking and revealing what's really going on in the stories of the more powerful people. So there's some very powerful things that are being said about class and about who has the right to tell a story, who we should listen to. So actually, I think that links quite interestingly to what I was saying about Virginia Woolf a few a few minutes ago. You know, yes. this idea of yes. well, how do we how do we know who who gets the right to speak? You know, and, and how, what kinds of things shape whom we're able to listen to, whose voices can can get heard. And that was something which was you know, a very radical thing to be saying in the 14th century. And it's really, I think, very, you know, still so important today for us to, to listen to that and to think about what Chaucer's is doing there. Absolutely. I, 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 it's so interesting to, um, and again, your book helps so much with this, you know, to place him firmly in his historical context and, but also think about what his implications for us today are. You know, one of the things I loved, I was reading an interview you gave, I forget where it was, but you said something like, you know, Chaucer is considered the sort of grandfather of English literature, but Chaucer was not the grandfather of English literature. Chaucer was a father to some sons and a daughter. And I I think I was so struck by that. I was thinking about it in bed last night. I think it's what happens with Shakespeare too and and any of our sort of great legends is they become like these statues. They become like these marble statues that are so exquisite and perfect. You forget they were human. You forget they were living, breathing people who farted and overslept and missed rehearsal or offended somebody or that they had their own interior inner lives and worlds that they lived in and I think that's where a book like yours is so wonderful because it returns uh, Chaucer in this moment to to his not just his humanity but his context and the politics and the world mm-hmm. and the fatherness and what it was to be in a great household what it was to uh, be subservient and then to uh, gain in stature what it was to move through the world to then come to represent it on the page and give us this multiplicity of voices, give us uh, a Reeve and a wife of Bath and uh, a Clark and all these different figures because that was the world he was living in. This was the densely populated, noisy world he he moved in. And I think I'm, I, I agree and I love you bringing it back to social media because because this is the this is the densely populated world we we live in too it's not that different mm. it's just we have broadband you know it's <laughs> we just yeah the the yeah. hearing of each other is that um when you say Chaucer shaped you um i'm guessing he shaped you as you say because of this you know multiplicity of voices and and not taking authority on any one single term Presumably, it shaped you in a more direct way too. In that, here you are writing his biography. I mean, what, mm. what, at what point did you realize Middle English was for you? That that was your arena. Um, so in my in my final year of my undergraduate degree at Oxford, um, I mean, I you know I, I loved all the different periods of English literature, um, 
But I think I, I started to gravitate particularly towards the medieval at that point and to think if I were going to go on to a career in academia, um, that that would be the, the route that I would take. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's interesting what you just said about, I think, about the canon when you were talking about the way that we think about these figures in um, mm. as kind of statues. Because I think mm. the poem of Chaucer's that... Um, that really spoke to me about the problems of canonicity was the House of Fame, mm-hmm. where he talks about great authors as statues on pedestals. <laughs> and then he says, they are all, but they're all fighting with each other. And one says that another one lies. Mm. And the names of great authors are written in ice, but the ice is melting on one side and not on the other. So it's uh. all unstable. And the fact that he himself unpicks the idea of the canon. Mm. I think was always really, really striking to me. And so I went on to study um, this very canonical author, but always, I think, with the sense that he himself was very sceptical about the idea of of the canon. Mm. And I think what I've tried to do in, in my book, I mean, you know, in some ways, it seems like such a conventional thing to do, to write a biography of this great white male poet. And one thing that I'm trying to do in that book is say, well, he's he didn't think of himself like that his life wasn't sure. like that you know he, he didn't he he wasn't a this this patriarch you know trying to set up a tradition in fact he was challenging tradition all the time he was saying let's not respect authorities too much let's try to challenge them mm-hmm. let's do new things let's experiment you know he was incredibly experimental in the in the kinds of things that that he was doing um and so, so yeah, I suppose to go back to the ways that he's shaped me. So I suppose um, then across my career, I've been been working, thinking about teaching Chaucer, you know, for, for decades now. But really, particularly writing this biography, I think has really changed um, the kind of career that I'm having, the kinds of books that I want to write. Mm. Um, what are you, what are you writing next? So my next book is about the wife of Bath right across time. So I'm talking about her as mm. the first kind of female character in English literature. Um, the first kind of <laughs> ordinary female character, you know, who's she's, of course, extraordinary, but she's also ordinary. She's not a queen. Right. She's not a princess. She's not a saint. She's not a nun. She's someone who has sex and talks to her friends and goes on holiday and gets drunk and etc. She's also someone who talks about rape and domestic abuse and mm-hmm. very, very serious issues. Um, mm. But what I'm interested in is thinking about her in her own time. Why does a figure like this emerge post-pandemic at a time when actually mm. there were a lot more opportunities for women than there had been previously? But then I trace what happens mm. to her right across time because Shakespeare does a lot of things with her. There are ballads about her that are burnt in the 16th century. Voltaire writes a version of her story. And I go right up to the present day, because this very year, 2021, Zadie Smith is premiering a play about the wife of Bath. It's quite a Mm. close translation in a post-colonial context of the wife of Bath prologue and tale. Yeah, so it goes right across time and kind of ends up with um, talking about black British authors, a number of black British authors who've written versions. so but yeah I think that so I'm thinking of this actually as well as a biography a biography of a literary character and trying to think about Mm. can we can we think about a life across time like that a fictional Mm. life across time but writing the biography of Chaucer um was it was it was a different thing for me you know thinking about biography um and biography, I found a really wonderfully inclusive genre because I could write about literature history art history, trade, the history of architecture and spaces. Mm. I went traveling mm. to lots of the places that he went to. One of the books I thought about putting on my list, but that just didn't make the cut, was this book um, called Footsteps by Richard Holmes, The Adventures of a Romantic Biographer, where he talks about mm. writing biography and the importance of retracing the steps of your biographical subject. And that was something mm. I did a lot when I was writing about Chaucer. Um, and luckily, I can the kind of love, Chaucer went I loved to. It. <laughs> I loved it when I noticed that I, I realized that you were going, um, not only were you retracing his steps, and I love that 
uh, the, some of the photographs in the book are clearly your photographs. They're not stock footage mm. of Navarre or something. Yeah. No, it's very touching. It's actually a, a, an important sort of humanizing moment in the book is to see that these photographs that have clearly come from you of, of where you went. Mm. And you not only went, but you went in the same season. So if he arrived mm. in Navarre in February, so did you. And to, in order to sort of absorb properly what the weather must have been like or the dampness yeah. or what it felt yeah. like. I, I, I thought I, I I was struck by the meticulousness of, of your retracing. It was lovely. Oh, I'm so glad. No, I'm so glad that you noticed that because they, that mattered a lot to me just to try to get into his footsteps as much as I could. And of course, there's still so much of the medieval traces left around yeah. Europe. Um, so I, so I was able to to try to to see a lot of the things that he that he saw, um, and to to and to experience, I suppose, the changes of time as well. But also just to to try to to think myself into into his mindset as much as I could into his imagination. Um, so I suppose in that way, yeah, thinking about the Canterbury Tales just had had so much effect on me on on all those different travels on on the experience of you know the years of researching and writing that that book and Mm. now I think you know it's been it's been really wonderful for me to be able to 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 share that knowledge with a a much wider group of people than than I've been able Mm. to before you know so in my so, you know, a lot as an academic, you're you're talking to a smaller group, and that's important as well. And also because, of course, you're talking to lots and lots of students and schools and so on. But it's also been wonderful to me to for me to to talk about Chaucer to a much broader group and and to people who maybe didn't yeah. know much about him before, but now are interested, or who knew a little bit about him at school, but you know, are revisiting yeah. now. And so that's been, I suppose, that's helped me to think about maybe the role of a a kind of public intellectual more mm, you know to think about what is it that I want to do with the, the, the with the specific expertise that I have and mm. I think there is a huge value to just to speaking to one person I think that is very valuable I don't think it's all about it's, yes. I, it's I don't think it's all a numbers game you know not at all no um, sure but I yeah. do but I have been I found it so exciting actually the number of people that are not experts that are fascinated by by Chaucer and are willing to take the time to read my book. I mean, it's a long book and mm. it's it's complicated in various ways. And mm. I think that there are people who feel that you know, something has to be either very, very specific or dumbed down. Right. And that's not true at yeah. all. There are so many intelligent readers who do not want things to be dumbed down, who do not want to patronise, right. do not want to be patronised, and who are actually very, very happy to look things up yeah. and to, you know, to to check things and to think, oh, I, I don't know about that. I'm going to find out about it. And yeah. you know, that's been really lovely for me, actually, to realise how much scope I think there still is for mm. um, talking about quite you know, quite specialist material to quite a broad public. Um, you know, millions of people will, will listen to radio shows on Chaucer. Yeah, I think that Chaucer would be so thrilled to think that this was part of his legacy. I really do. Um, <laughs> I'm going to move us on because I could do this all day. I really could. But we've got your fifth book to cover. Your fifth book is The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro which was published in 2015. Uh, I last week just finished uh, or maybe I finished it just before I got your list, actually. Uh, Clara and the Sun, his latest novel, which I mm. uh, just loved and was deeply, deeply haunted by. Um, I, I pressed it into the hands of many people, or or at least metaphorically anyway. Um, uh, it's a book about AI, uh, and, uh, written from the point of view of an AI uh, who is given to her new owner. Um, and uh, I found it, very resonant and and um, oddly moving in the in his flat, uninflected prose that uh, somehow always manages to provoke this sort of melancholy. So to see his name on your list was really fun because he's, as I say, he's been very present for me. And I realised I I don't know the buried giant, so I did a little research. And for others that don't know it, it's set in post Arthurian Britain in a mythic uh, world with an elderly couple 
who have been uh, afflicted, as everyone has, by a sort of collective amnesia called the mist. And uh, they dimly recall that they have a son. And so they set off to go and find their son. So that's a brief and probably bastardized precy of, <laughs> of what the book is about. Um, tell me, what, what, why is this on your list? I think there's quite a lot of reasons. Mm. Um, I think that the first one is that this is a book which is about memory. Mm. And I was thinking about that a lot. It's a book about what we remember and what we forget, both in personal relationships and collectively as communities and nations. So, I mean, I love that about the book because it's, it's questioning the problem, the problems of remembering and the problems of forgetting. So as you said, mm. I thought it was a very good praise. There's this collective amnesia mm. and this couple are desperate to, to remember. At first, they're desperate to remember the truths of their own relationship, about what's going on, why are they forgetting? They want to get past it. But as we go on, we realize that remembering will take its own toll, that mm. there are atrocities in the past that have been, that have been forgotten and that the forgetting has held a kind of peace in intention, mm. that there are also problems in their relationship that they will remember and they're frightened about what might happen when they remember. So mm. I think, and I was thinking, why do I find memory so interesting? Why is that something that I feel has, because this book has haunted me. It stayed with me. I think about it. Mm. And Did you read it when it first came out? Yes, I did. I did. And so a few years ago, um, I suppose about yeah, five or six years ago, and I think that partly, I mean, everyone's experience will be different. But I think when you hit a kind of middle age, you know, you're, you're I don't really know what middle age is these days, but um, I'm 45 now. So I suppose I was around 40 when I first read it, that I certainly have thought a lot more about time as I've got older as, as once my children got out of their very young years I found I was thinking about time sure. all the time <laughs> you know, you know, after, after that fog where you're just thinking is everyone yeah. still alive at the end of the day and have yes. I still got my job sure. you know then I just started thinking a lot about <laughs> about time about temporality my own life their lives the time passing and I suppose mm. what we are in a sense is is our memories and our imaginations you, you know that so memory mm. Is is something, I, I, and you think about creating memories with your children, don't you? About mm. w what are their what are their memories of their childhood going to be that we are making? Mm. I, I just think mm. time means something quite different to me now than it meant to me fifteen years ago, and certainly yes. twenty, thirty years ago. So I think memory is fascinating. Um, I think that one other, another aspect of this book that makes it particularly meaningful for me is that. You know, in my my whole life is really, you know, really rooted in, in books, obviously. Mm. And my day job is medieval literature. And my nighttime um, reading before I go to sleep every night, I always read before I go to sleep every night, you know, however tired. And I read a lot of different things. But I read a lot of contemporary fiction. Mm. Um, and there's, there's a lot of wonderful contemporary fiction. I read a lot of that. Um, and this is a book that kind of brings those two halves of my reading life sure. together. Yeah. Not... I mean, not, you know, not just because it's a book of historical fiction, obviously, there's lots of books of historical fiction, mm -hmm. but because it is a book about why the past matters. Mm. That is very fundamentally what it's about. Why does the past matter? Why should we try and remember the past? Because mm. this is a book which is about what happened when tribes invaded Britain and you know what happened between those tribes and the people that were here before them what is there that's in the the post-roman um history of britain when 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 angles and saxons came came over and so it's, it's imagining what happened because a lot we, we don't know a lot of, of what happened but it's therefore also a book about what's happening in palestine it's also a book about what's happened in northern ireland mm. it's it's a book about all kinds of experiences where different peoples are claiming or want to live in the same land about different kinds of of colonization about the most pressing issues for mm -hmm. you know for almost anyone you know mm -hmm. politically thinking in terms of long time across across the world and mm -hmm. you know how do we how do we remember and honor that past without 
letting it become such a destructive drag on our present that we can't get beyond it and we just end up in terrible cycles of of violence Mm. you know when do we need not to forget but to to move on from that and how can we do that and these are the kinds of questions that it's asking so it's both about the fact that this has happened in the past and it goes on happening in the present and and in the future Mm. but also about how people might try to to engage with the past of their own of their own community yeah so I think it's such an important book for that reason I think that's um I think that's so it's so interesting I mean I'm many thoughts at the same time one is that as I was researching the book and I uh I mean I think I knew this anyway but was reminded of the fact that Kazuo Shiguro lives in England now but was born in Nagasaki which uh obviously Mm -hmm. has is its own horrendous past and what at what level this is um his conscious or unconscious attempt to uh, absorb uh contextualize deal with um the world he comes from originally and and what that is reading about it i Mm. i I read in i think it was the new york times or maybe it was the new yorker an interview he gave um and he talked about wanting so much for a blank canvas that was devoid, that wasn't too contextualized. He didn't want to write it. Um, he, he had, I'm looking at my notes, he'd had various ideas about um, setting this in Northern Ireland or setting this in uh, Bosnia, I think, was another alternative. And when he settled on uh, this post-Arthurian Britain, this, uh, that, th- the lack of information about this particular era was hugely appealing to him, that it was so mm. soothing mm. and allowed him to tell the story he wanted to tell without anyone being able to impose too much allegorical, uh, to, to any, any, to impose too strict a narrative on, on top of it, which I thought was, I thought that was really interesting. Mm. Mm. And it allows him also to, to be, to write in this very myth, mythical way and I like the fact that it has this I think very clever strain of fantasy and myth in it that that can be interpreted in in lots of different ways I mean there is a dragon there is Gawain there are there's these there's part of it which is very very reminiscent of Beowulf Mm. there's there's lots of different things going on there that are gestures towards really fundamental poems and myths and and I think it it remains quite open in in how we might think about what's going on there and I like the fact that it's um that it's not it's not trying to be realist so it's not trying to say this is this is how I literally imagine things were here in the fifth or sixth century you know it's it's got this very very powerful strain of myth which also I think makes it easier then to make connections out of that particular historical moment and to to think about it in these very broad terms. But there's, I mean, I think that it actually, I think, links back very interestingly to our our early converse, part of this conversation about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, because, again, there are these very powerful you know, symbols in, in this mm-hmm. book. You know, just as when I think about the Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, I think about, you know, Mr. Tumnus mm-hmm. and so on. When I think about Very Giant, I do think about the, um, the, the kind of emaciated dragon. I think about the boatman, and the river and these these symbols which are which are quite um primal and and mythic Mm. in in all kinds of ways Mm. um but i suppose you know you then what's what's very different to to lewis is the fact that i think there is there isn't a a clear message in the same way and and i do really really like that about about the very giant Mm. that I, i there's so many different things going on in this in this book and I, I think we do end up with a lot of um, of productive confusion about mm. how how do we go about remembering and forgetting? Mm. Um, because I think mm. those are just such crucial themes. And and I suppose you know when I'm you know bringing this back to this issue to, to my own life and and, and the podcast, yeah. the idea of the podcast of how does this how does this make me? I suppose you know these are things that are of of ongoing importance maybe I mean maybe particularly when you are in this kind of middle phase of of life you know to think about 
you know, how much time do you spend, you know, remembering? I've always been really interested in kind of thinking about family past. Yeah. And, and a lot of people dwell a great deal on that. Um, but then partly as you get older, you also think, think more about about the importance of, of living in the present, which is also what the pandemic has, has taught a lot of us, is I, the, I, you know, the importance. I agree. And I, I agree. And I, I'm writing a book at the moment, which are sort of largely based on my um, crazy adventurer dad's stories. And I, I don't know what it is yet. And it may take me another 15 years to finish. But anyway, it's 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 going on. But and I'm struck uh, I'm struck by this idea that this vivid, huge, uh, extraordinary personality is gone and gone so suddenly and that all we are is our stories. That's all we are is our collection. That's all we leave behind is, is, mm. is the stories around us. And if we don't um, commemorate those stories, be it around the campfire or curled up with the kids at bed or laying them down in a book, uh, then we have we have nothing. So, so, you know, it was to, to sum all of your books up, it was such a, it was such a pleasure going through this list. It was so personal for me. It was clearly so personal for you. It was so fun looking at the Canterbury tales again and, and going to the British library website and looking at the manuscript and to, and, and to think that this, that this extraordinary document has made it through all these, you know, 650 odd years uh, you know, I, I just urge us all go out and tell your stories, write them down, read other people's. It's all at the end of the day, it's all we've got. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's a wonderful conclusion, because that is, I suppose, what all these books are about. But that that message of telling your own stories, and also listening to lots of other people's mm-hmm. stories. I mean, listening, trying to trying to bear witness I think that's a great gift we can give to people to listen to their stories, to bear witness to what's happened to other people and share all kinds of stories and that, that stories can do so much for us um, that mm. they can be, they can help us to remember, but maybe they can also help us when we need to, to forget as well. Mm. Lovely. Marion, what a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much. This was an enormous pleasure for me. I can only imagine it was for our listeners too. So thank you for taking so much time. I'm so grateful. Well, thank you for having me. It has been a total pleasure. Um, I could do it 10 times over. As I say, I have so many shadow lists. Um, it, it was just, it was wonderful for me. Really a, a very special experience. Mary, you're so welcome. Thank you very much. As I said, I could have gone on and on. Mary and I had a long chat about children's books that we edited for time, and she generously sent me a long list of recommendations for my daughter. I will share them on the website. These are UK books that might be fun for my US listeners who are looking for new recommendations for your kids, ones that Amazon or your local bookstore might not stick in front of you. And let's keep the conversation going. What's the most formative children's book you've read? The one that you remember really impacting you as a kid. Who read it to you? For me, it was Where the Wild Things Are by Morris Sendak. My poor dad had to read it to me every night for years. Uh, You can actually hear me talk about it because it's one of my five books when Joe interviewed me back in season one on Bookish. Head over to Bookish with Sonia on Instagram and share your thoughts there. My thanks to Marion for her time and generosity, to my friend and former guest, Piers Torday, for introducing us, to Brie Weiss for producing the episode, and Davy Holmes for the jingle. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. Have a great week. <laughs>